So in December, the opening salvo was launched by this tiny, no one's ever heard of them before hedge fund against ExxonMobil. And their whole plan is we want to overhaul ExxonMobil's board. You know, people have been trying to do this for years. So, you know, were people convinced that this tiny company could do it? Probably not. But as the months go on, it's clear that they've hit on a moment for investors. First of all, when they say they want to overhaul the board, they put forward this kind of amazing slate of energy industry experts from Europe and from the US. Biden's just been elected. Climate change is back on the top of the agenda. ESG is a huge investing trend and people's lives are turned upside down by the pandemic, which strangely has not made them forget about climate change. And, you know, as the months go on, you start to see Exxon kind of firing these salvos back and you start seeing this increasingly kind of public tit for tat, all leading up to the annual general meeting at the end of May in which, in a complete shocker, Exxon loses this proxy vote, which they've been lobbying against extremely aggressively. And the big investors, the Blackrocks and the Vanguards, come out in favor of this tiny little hedge fund and vote to put what will become eventually three new people on Exxon's board. And the man leading that tiny little hedge fund is our guest today on Leadership Next, Chris James of Engine Number One. Welcome to Leadership Next, the podcast about the changing rules of business leadership. I'm Alan Murray here with my super amazing co-host, <laughs> Ellen McGurk. Hi, Alan. Hi, everybody. We have such an amazing story for you today. Fortune reporter Catherine Dunn laid out the basics for us at the top of the show, and I'll say it again. There's a special place in heaven for beat reporters because they know how the world works. She said what happened was a complete Shocker. But we really need to emphasize here that changes like this at a giant Fortune 500 company just don't happen. Oh, you're so right, Ellen. I, I think this is one of the biggest stories, business stories of the year. I mean, remember, ExxonMobil for many years was at the very top of the Fortune 500 list. And it was sort of this, it really thought of itself as above reproach. I mean, right. it was the the ultimate engineer's company. They were better than anybody else at what they did, and they didn't want anybody telling them how to do it differently. So this is a very big, big thing to happen. It absolutely is. And we're going to hear more about all of this in a minute from Chris and Catherine about why now was such a good time to make this move. But part of the puzzle, for sure, is that some of these big investors have been raising concerns just to your point about how Exxon is going to handle this move to a low carbon future for a while now and felt like they'd been basically been ignored by the company because the ignore is what they do. And finally, they were tired of it. Yeah. And the interesting thing, it's a real David and Goliath story here, is that Chris James really runs a very small hedge fund. Mm. It's a tiny portion of Exxon's total equity. And he had to convince a lot of other shareholders to join him. But in the end, he did and got three new members on the Exxon board. One thing I want to quickly point out is that while Chris was the one we wanted to hear from on this, he does have a partner, Charlie Penner, who was instrumental in this fight as well. Mm -hmm. uh, but let's dive into the conversation with Chris James of Engine Number One. Look, I've been covering business and the intersection between business and society for four decades, I'm sorry to say. Uh, and, and I have to say... I have never encountered in those four decades a company that was sort of more 
I think the word I'd use is arrogant, more impervious to uh, stakeholder demands, outside demands, just more uh, thumb their nose and say, we have a good business model and it works and we're making money and leave us alone than Exxon. And it worked for them for years and years and years. You know, investors were happy. They got the return. So what gave you the notion that Exxon was a worthy target for an activist investor? In my case, having been around the oil and gas um, sector and growing up in a coal mining town and throughout my philanthropic work, doing work at the intersection between energy and the case for the National Fish and Wildlife Foundation, large scale um, ecosystems. And that intersection, no matter what happened, was fraught with very tough decisions. And when we started developing our total value framework, which looks at what is the net really value of a company to society at large, that we saw that Exxon, second behind Philip Morris, had the largest negative impact on society. And Hmm. we had used a a formula that we had developed and continued to, to enhance to look at how companies impact all their different stakeholders. And of course, the largest for Exxon is, is on the environment. And there have some, obviously, some positive attributes and other components of stakeholder capitalism. But I was fortunate enough to know and be able to talk to several ex-senior executives and several ex-employees. And most importantly, a, a lot of other CEOs and board members of other companies and pieced together what was resoundingly a picture that was painted was that a company that was not going to be able to transition as the world changed because of the term that always came up was insular culture. Mm-hmm. And I, I think understanding the history of, of Exxon was really important and how they got to where they are today, because it is almost run like a, a military organization. <laughs> and in doing so, they managed to build an organization that could build the most complex engineering platforms, drill in the toughest conditions, um, because of this military-like precision, and operate within spheres of government with a level of clout that was as strong as most any other government. Now, unfortunately, the world changed, and the organization did not change with yeah. it. And just to make sure I understand, it was not, let's go after an oil company. It was, let's go after Exxon. Exxon has a particular problem. It was um, specifically tied to, to Exxon. Yes. This was a, a, a company that was that had ignored shareholders, had ignored many other stakeholders. And I think that that insular culture came back and had a an impact when it came down to ultimately the, the vote on whether or not people really wanted to see change at what you could vote on, which was you know the, the board level. So you mentioned the the vote and the proxy fight. Let's stick to the big headlines. What were the big takeaways, the big victories from this effort? You know, surprisingly, the idea that the way you affect change is by actually voting, like that somehow has gotten lost in the basic <laughs> huh. idea, that idea of like democratizing capitalism. I think people kind of forgot what the really the power of the vote was. And this is something that always like, drove me crazy. During the election last year, you would see people say, get out and vote, get out and vote. Certainly um, among more of the, um, I would say that you probably saw more on the left than you saw on the right leading up to the uh, presidential election. 
But those same people are also saying you should divest from fossil fuels. And there's just cognitive dissonance there that it doesn't make any sense. If you want to change, you have to retain your vote. Hmm. Yeah, it's so interesting and it's such an important point. You know, I went to a football game back in the days when you could go to football games between Harvard and Yale. So presumably smart students. And at halftime, a whole group of Harvard and Yale students jointly walked out in the middle of the field and sat down and refused to get up and said, we're not going to get up until both schools agreed to disinvest from all fossil fuels. And what you have shown in the last year is that's not the way, first of all, if, if the fossil fuel companies shut down, it would, the effects would be disastrous. But what you need to do is get in there and make them invest in the transition. Yes. But not everybody can, right? There's something special about this effort and there's something special about the access that you had and the power that you had, and right? And we had no power and no access. I, I'll tell you, <laughs> okay. it, it was literally, I can't tell you that this could not have been done more by the book. And I say that because I think everyone we dealt with was very concerned about the public attention if they voted, whatever direction they were going to vote, they were going to have to explain to everybody. This came from from really an enormous amount of hard work and some strategy, but the hard work. I mean, I I, I can't tell you how many calls that our directors um, and our director nominees were doing. There are days where they would have four or five calls a day, and these were hour, hour and a half calls with right. people that owned as small as investment groups owned as small as like eight basis points, six basis points. Wow. Your holdings were pretty small as well, right? Oh, our, our, I mean, our, our holdings were minuscule. Yeah. And you got three directors. Yeah, we got three directors. Cool. Um, but it, it was the it was the power of, of the argument and the idea and the experience over the last decade of many investors in doing with a company that would not listen to its shareholders and stakeholders. They, so the, they, uh, this is a podcast, so I can uh, say they did this. Listeners, my, my can... listeners, I cannot wait to tell you the gesture that Alan Murray is making right now. I cannot wait to tell you all about it. But Chris and Alan, I must ask the Oprah-style question here. What motivates you? you? You mentioned earlier growing up in a coal mining zip code. You mentioned your philanthropy work. How did all of this happen so that now you're, you're working to make an impact in this way? I've told the story a few times, but it, it really started, um, I think, probably with many um, reflections that we get from our kids when you try to explain something out loud and the nuance, which somehow is very straight in your own head. They look at you with the wrinkled forehead and said that, you know, dad, that doesn't make sense. And so as I tried to explain to my son how I could invest in the oil and gas sector and still really care about the outdoors, nature, and, and we, as a family, we spent a lot of time outdoors. He didn't understand how I could do both. Right. And ultimately, as I myself was actually outdoors, thinking about the conversation I had with my kids, I kind of realized, you know what? They're kind of right. I'm, I'm splitting hairs in my own head. And, mm. and there was a, a specific issue associated with a, a very dear friend of mine, actually my, my best friend, where he had a family house in Virginia that he could never really run away from the idea that it was actually a plantation. And I realized the burden of a family's history, if values are not aligned, is a very big burden. Of course, I, I couldn't piece this together at the time, but the next weekend I was, I was in Wyoming, you know, up, up in the mountains, and all, it all kind of came together. I'm like, I really don't think that the idea, if you look over the long term, that there is a separation between impacts and, and value creation 
I think that idea is wrong. And, and it was kind of referred to as the Carnegie model, which is, you know, do a bunch over here um, on the business side, who cares what the impact is, and then I'll give it all away. And so everything's going to like square right. out. Right. Also the Gates model. <laughs> uh, and the Gates model, which I, I think is completely wrong. All right, I want to bring Fortune's Catherine Dunn back in here for just a minute. She recently wrote a big feature for us on Exxon and regular reports on topics related to the environment and oil and gas industry. So, Catherine, this one's for you. Is this a moment? Do you think this is going to have a ripple effect outside of Exxon? Oh, yeah. Yeah, 100%. People can't stop talking about it. And I think it's this feeling of an environmental movement is not new to ExxonMobil. You can go back and you can read about them in the 70s and they had people, you know, nuns turning up at their AGMs and environmental activists. And I think one of the, the ideas and one of the things that, you know, where they really misread the moment is they thought, oh, we've been through this all before. So what? We're unpopular. Maybe we've, we've never been popular with certain people. We've always had critics. But I, I don't know what's what's the old, like the old cliche the chickens have come home to roost like there's a mm. sense mm. of accountability and now you know the Black Rocks and the vanguards of the world you know there's some accountability now and I, I think the political mood has really shifted people would say you know in Europe the political mood has been different for some time in terms of action on climate change and I think with the Biden administration uh, a lot of people got oops okay uh, this is going to be a priority. Um, because, you know, the oil companies that have spent a long time saying, and in fact, Exxon kind of still continues to say, government needs to move, government needs to move, government needs to move. But if government starts to move, well, the dynamic really changes. And then you see if they can pick up and adapt to that. Yeah. And and Catherine, what engine number one is saying is not stop drilling oil, stop drilling no. gas. I mean, clearly we're going to be living with oil and gas for many decades into the future, but they are saying invest in the transition. Is that what we're going to get from those three board members is just pushing them to invest in uh, transition technologies? I am really curious to see. Obviously, one of the things about those three board members is, you know, one of them is the former CEO of Endeavor. And that's where engine number one were really smart because they really had to bring a lot of people to the table on this. And part of that was showing that they understood the energy industry and could bring people yeah. on from the inside. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I would expect to see some more ambitious emission targets. Darren Woods has been incredibly critical of the net zero by 2050. He's made some decent points that nobody knows how they're going to do it, but that's no reason not to make some more ambitious goals for 2030, which is really what we need at this point as a society. I am really curious to see if they kind of expand because they have a lot of the technology. You know, people said they've, they've got an R&D business. They've got, you know, lubricants and chemicals. They do a lot of work on plastics. People inside the company told me that there were obvious projects that they were working on that would just kind of, you know, they get to a certain point, they go up to Dallas and then they just stop. So they have stuff hmm. internally that they can get a move on. Nobody knows what's been going on at this board, right? One of the enduring riddles of this story is how you could have a board with so many super well-respected, experienced uh, former CEOs, and yet a lot of the stuff didn't seem to be breaking through. And obviously, the big investors would have been trying to go to the board. And obviously, they've been voicing their concerns. So like, what was happening on this board? Like, was nobody yeah. on this board raising concerns? I'm curious, since you're, while you're, we have you here, 
what else does engine number one have planned? Yeah. Yeah. Like what's, what's coming up? Can you tell what's us anything? Next? You know, I did have a sense that, you know, it wasn't going to be just this campaign. And obviously their ETF that they've launched is very much focused around kind of drawing people into this active campaign approach that they're going to take, which is, which is very different than this flood of ESG investing we've seen, which is much more focused on divesting, only investing in certain things, yada, yada, yada. This engagement approach, I want to see who their next campaign is with and whether or not they're going to stay focused on environment. Yeah, it was fascinating that that he that they want to call their ETF vote because mm, yeah. it's about the power of the shareholder votes. It's not being used right now. Most people are investing through these giant funds. And even though Larry Fink writes his annual letter, they're not really exercising their vote in a way that can enforce change on these companies. One of the shocks of, of covering this, because I hadn't you know come from this world, was and all these massive shareholders were going to them saying, we want to talk to the board. We yeah. want to have some accountability. Yeah. We would like capitalism to function here. You know, the head of engagement at, at CalPERS, Ann Simpson, who's like an amazing talker, uh, she was like, you know, it was incredible because we'd say, I'd like to talk to the board. And they say, well, fill out this form on our website. And she'd say, I don't know if you've heard of us. We're pretty big. And they'd say, fill out this form on our website. And she was like, I, I don't think... This is how capitalism is supposed to work. It's supposed to work. It's so yeah. interesting. It's so interesting, Catherine. Yes. You know, this has been set up in the last few years as this uh, tension between the shareholder model and the stakeholder model. But as you point out, more and more shareholders are now taking a stakeholder approach. And Chris James, of course, is the ultimate example of that. So, Chris, what now? I mean, you got three board members on the Exxon board. The question is... What can they do and can they do it without hurting the financial returns of the company? Hmm. Well, the most interesting thing about this is that these are three independent directors that we nominated. In most cases, as I'm sure all of you guys have seen, in many cases of the activists, the activists put, ask themselves to go, to go on the board or they themselves go on the board. We didn't do this specifically because we felt what was lacking from the board was operating experience and successful operative experience in the oil and gas sector, specifically around transitions. And so it's now really up to them to affect change. And, you know, once they are officially on the Exxon board, I mean, it's the, their obligation are to Exxon shareholders. And we'll, we'll really see how, how they react to that and how the board reacts. And, and I understand that, you know, many of the board members and management team are kind of been out of shape about the campaign, but I, I think anyone who's read any of our public documents will see, we, we never said anything bad about any one of them. Uh, we didn't get personal. We, we kind of kept it all about business. This is a company that has an enormous amount of technology and brilliance inside. I think they've been just pointed the wrong direction. I mean, think it's a, it's a company that invented a lithium ion battery. It's a company that learned how to scale solar, right? Back in the, uh, in the eighties, they have some of the best uh, material engineers in the world, if not the best. And the world is many parts of what Exxon is really good at is something that may be applicable to the future. I, I don't think it's necessarily, you know, the areas in which they have historically been successful or, or particularly adjacent, but I, I think with the right culture, I think this company can be successful. So what is the future of the engine number one transform 500 ETF fund? Mm. What is the vision behind that? And, and what does that look like for the world? Yeah. So as 
unbelievable as it actually is, the idea that the ticker symbol, which is vote, was mm-hmm. available. The fact that no one had thought that vote could be used <laughs> and the power of vote kind of, I think in many ways, tells you where the system <laughs> what really was. We think how many ETFs there are. And when we went to check to see that it was available, it was, I, I fell out of my chair. <laughs> so the, the idea was to be much more um, active in the way we vote. I, I remember when the She Fund was launched in some ridiculously large number, over 50% of the, the time they voted against gender pay equality measures. And, and the ticker was She. And the, the reason is inside of these large fund complexes, you're not going to change, have different votes for different parts of the large fund complex. So you basically have to, you vote from the, the governance group decides which way they're going to vote based on a variety of different criteria. So it's very hard to go out on a limb in, in, within that large complex and do something wow. more, more progressive. Wow. So you mean like everybody in BlackRock has to vote the same way? Well, they don't have to, but they do. They do. Practically yeah. speaking. And I'm sure there are times where they split their vote, but I think large fund complexes can't be all things, all people. And we're not trying to be all things, all people. The vote isn't trying to be all things, all people. We are driving one specific idea that, you know, how, how do companies treat their employees? How do companies treat their customers? Um, how do they treat the environment? We feel very strongly that these are predictive of long-term value creation. And, you know, they call it, you know, it's known as stakeholder capitalism. As one person who I won't name told me, I don't understand why you young kids had to come up with a new name for everything. Um, <laughs> it's someone that you all know. He said, it's just common sense capitalism. And I'm like, that, that's actually true. And so um, in the process of this, we did, I interviewed um, a lot of founders of very large companies who are in their, in their 80s and asked them why they thought they were so successful. And, and what they explained was almost always the same story. We quote unquote, did the right thing. And, and it's not a coincidence that these people were incredibly successful. And that was because there was an idea of how to create value and it came from a certain era. And, and now we are coming up with new names like stakeholder capitalism. But you know, a lot of this was lost because what was effectively, you know, I'll call it you know, some sense of moral and environmental ar- arbitrage by moving jobs outside of the US. Yeah. And because if you don't have an EPA, imagine how cheap you can actually manufacturer. If you don't have to pay anyone a living wage, of course. I mean, forced labor, it's incredibly cheap. Uh, Ellen, I I think Chris has just given us a new name for our podcast. We'll call it Common Common Sense Sense Capitalism. And when we do the renaming, we will have you back uh, to go further (laughs) into your total value model. There's one thing I think that's really important I point out before we leave. You said you were an outdoorsman. I just want you to know that Ellen is an outdoors woman. And even though that fish behind her is silk. It's a rainbow she, trout, Ellen. She do, it's a <laughs> silk rainbow trout. She does fly fish on a regular basis. Oh. That's where I do my best thinking about capitalism for the last 12 years out there in the ecosystem. You know, I had a glare. I can't believe I didn't see that huge rainbow trout. <laughs> Holy tamale. I know. My whole house is an Etsy tribute to the outdoors. As a, as a cynical girl from Harlem, USA, just being able to have that experience has changed my life. And ecosystem thinking is it's a, it's a wonderful way to, to look through the world with fresh eyes, as you described, Chris. Yes, I, I think that the idea that the interconnectedness of, of everything is, and whether it's like philosophical terms or whether business terms, I think that's something that the information revolution in many ways and, and ESG criteria and the data sets are coming with that are starting to allow us to think about how interconnected 
everything is. And if mm. that is actually true, then there's no way that the impacts that, that companies have is not actually predictive of long-term value creation. Wow. Wow. That has given us a lot to chew on here. Chris, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us. Well, thank Fasc- you. Fascinating conversation. We're going to be watching to see what your, your next target is. Thank you. And I'll talk to you guys soon. Leadership Next is edited by Nicole Vergala, written by me, Alan Murray, along with my amazing colleagues, Ellen McGirt and Megan Arnold. Our theme is by Jason Snell. Executive producers are Mason Cohn and Megan Arnold. Leadership Next is a production of Fortune Media.